Hello, everybody, and welcome to our Future in Space Hangout, where every other week on Thursdays, we check in with various astronomers, engineers, and space technologists to learn about the projects being developed for humanity's future in the exploration and understanding of outer space. My name's Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space, and today's topic is ISRU, or In-Situ Resource Utilization. And if you don't know what that is, it's all right. It's all about using what's out there already in space, on Mars, on the moon, wherever we go, to help us inhabit and colonize space. It's much easier to use what's there than to try to schlep it all with us. That's, that's a term my grandmother used to say. She always schlepped things around. And so people have been looking at what resources we could use that's already out there to make the task of exploring space easier. And for decades now, NASA has been addressing or assessing options to use these resources that are available in space, mostly on the moon and Mars, to sustain long-duration human operations. And it would be prohibitively expensive to send from Earth to either, low, either of those places uh, enough resources for astronauts to carry out priority mission goals. So uh, not to mention all the stuff about settling there. So NASA's human spaceflight program focuses on lunar operations and technologies to enable eventual human missions to Mars and, and all these other places. And um, and it's become a high priority. ISRU has become a high priority in NASA's technology investment plans. So today, we are going to be talking with scientists from NASA's Johnson Space Flight. I keep doing that. It's NASA's Johnson Space Center. You get rid of the flight now. Um, to help us get a grip on what's <laughs> being done in this area. And I want to say first that these hangouts are sponsored by the American Astronautical Society. Or association, or yeah, American Astron Astronomical Society, whose members provide our vanguard for space travel and space astronomy. And I want to thank them for their generous support of these hangouts, without which we could not bring them to you. So thank you very much for that. Okay, since we are live, we're also talking, we're also taking your questions and comments on YouTube. Twitch, Facebook, and Periscope. So we hope you'll use this time to ask questions live. But if you're watching the VOD of this broadcast, or if you're listening to the audio on the, on the podcast form, don't let that stop you. You can you can still comment as well and, and leave comments and questions because I follow all of our Hangout comments even after we're done broadcasting. So feel free if you're watching this after the fact. Okay, so let me bring up my co-host, Dr. Harley Thronson. He is from NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. Hi, Harley. How are you doing? Doing well. Good afternoon. Good. It's good to see you. Nice uh, to see you. And it's been a while, but gosh, when did we last do a hangout? It was it like it was November, beginning of November. November. Yeah, uh, sorry, it was October. We took no for that's right. I explain. We took November off. Right, we sort of did. Uh, okay, well, why don't you introduce uh, our topic a little bit more than what I just did, and maybe talk a little bit about thank the American Astronomical Society as well. Um, yep. Although, although it was an excellent introduction. So, so um, thank you, Tony. Yeah. The, um, you got it exactly right. Uh, the experience so far with human spaceflight uh, has been that uh, mm -hmm. the astronauts have um, uh, not really much taken advantage of the resources that exist in space. Um, you know, the space station, of course, decades ago with the Apollo program, uh, everything that they needed, um, eating, drinking, uh, they took with them, and that is extremely expensive. So for some several decades, NASA, other space agencies as well, uh, NASA in partnership with academia and industry, um, have, has been looking at uh, ways of exploiting the resources that exist in space. Uh, the, with um, the uh, new direction to NASA, to develop scenarios, architectures, and the technology for operating on the moon within the next, say, 10 to 15 years, um, the interest in ISRU on the moon has increased significantly. In addition to the value of supporting astronauts on the surface of the moon for that purpose alone, the moon is, has been identified by NASA as a stepping stone eventually to Mars. So developing, um, if, if I could say, developing the ability to use the resources of the moon both for operate, uh, um, has got two purposes to allow operations on the surface of the moon, exploration and so on, and then eventually to enable humans to go to Mars. Um, the, uh, Jerry and Steve, um, our guests today, uh, have been part of a series of workshops on 
Is that you? (laughs) (laughs) I I thought I turned it off. I guess with an iPhone off does not really mean off (laughs) in the, in the human sense. (laughs) Siri seems to have taken over my, my iPhone. Any case, uh, I have been involved in a series of workshops, most recently this past August, in which at that workshop, uh, we, we technically critically examined claims that operations and technology, uh, technologies, capabilities being um, developed on the moon uh, to enable eventual uh, missions, human missions to Mars, um, we, exa- we examined those claims critically, including ISRU, and found, yeah, there were some real possibilities that properly exploited uh, resources on the moon, not only so it would support human operations on the moon, but would also allow us to travel with humans eventually to Mars. Got a couple of experts today, and I think it's time to introduce them. Okay. Uh, yes, so uh, here I have everybody up now, and um, we are uh, right next to me on my on my panel. Here is um, is uh, Stephen Hoffman. He is, both of these guys, by the way, are from NASA's Johnson Space Center, and uh, we are uh, so Stephen Hoffman is working on ISRU there at, at NASA Johnson. Also, right below me is uh, Jerry uh, Jerry Sanders, who is uh, also working on the same topic. So, welcome, guys. Um, and uh, please let me know, uh, who wants to give us um, an overview about what NASA is currently working on? Well, actually, let's take a step back. Both Harley and I have given a brief introduction to what ISRU is, some of the challenges. Uh, but I guess, would, would you tell us what NASA is most concerned about with this, with this topic as far as human exploration and what resources they're putting towards this, this, this problem? You may take a stab at it, Jerry. Yeah, sounds good. Okay, go okay. ahead. In 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 this realm, uh, I'm sort of a sort of I am one of the mission planners. I'm the guy that tries to take all the pieces that you need to make a mission work and put them together in a way that that makes sense and try not to leave anything out. Uh, if I if I can define for Jerry what he does, his he is more. Uh, centered on certain pieces of technology that I like to put into my my uh, equipment basket of things to take along uh, to help make the pull these missions off successfully. And as you mentioned, um, ISRU. I guess I most hear about ISRU in the sense of making propellants somewhere, um, but I tend to think of ISRU in a more general sense, more broadly uh, uh, applied in that it's using anything that you find at a destination to uh, help you pull out that mission successfully and help you avoid bringing something along that you uh, uh, might otherwise consider necessary. Uh, up to this point in time, all of our all of our missions to the moon, to low Earth orbit, uh, the, other than sunlight for power, I guess, uh, we've tended to bring everything along with us. And that means uh, you know every every pound or every kilogram of something we need to bring along means it's a pound or a kilogram of something we can't uh, do otherwise. Um, so Propellants is a very good example. Breathing gases is another good example, but you can broaden that out to, you can think of construction. If we needed to build up uh, berms or even full habitats, full habitat structures from local materials, that helps us avoid having to bring all that uh, mass along with us. And instead allows us to either either, uh, come with less stuff, which means smaller launch vehicles, or with the same launch vehicle, we could actually bring more, uh, more equipment that you you're not going to be able to find there, and be uh, have a more extensive or more effective uh, mission in the end. So with that, uh, that's kind of my my role in life is to try and figure out how do we uh, how do we try and leverage the stuff that's already there, so we don't have to bring it along. And uh, Jerry helps us figure out how to take raw materials that are there and turn them into something that's useful. Okay, uh, Jerry, you want to give us a little idea about what you're working on then? 
Well, Steve gave a, a great overview, um, and and as he as he pointed out, uh, using the resources versus bringing things from Earth is very important. Um, and uh, you know, one of the things to kind of factor into that 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 Steve was alluding to um, that I can expand upon just slightly is the fact that. For every kilogram that you land or bring to a planetary surface, again, whatever it might be, um, requires you know propulsion systems and landers and, and transfer stages and such. To the extent that if you work backwards, it equates to something on the order of seven and a half to say eleven kilograms of stuff that actually has to be flown into orbit uh, from the Earth's surface. So. You know, propellants um, obviously is has a has a huge factor. Um, typically, it's seventy-five to eighty percent of the spacecraft's mass, if not more. Um, and in the case of Mars, for example, it takes something on the order of about thirty metric tons of propellant to get off the Mars surface. So when you multiply that by seven and a half to eleven, um, and what's needed to actually deliver that ascent propellant, you're talking about three to five SLS launches. So, so obviously propellants is, is one of the first ones um, that we look at. And, and so as Steve was alluding to, my job is, the, is how to figure out how to make that. Um, and Steve's job to a certain extent is how can that be used in the architecture? Um, besides propellants, um, you know, some of the other things that we look at is how do we reduce mission risk to the crew? Um, so again, if you have to bring everything from Earth and you just didn't bring the right amount of material with you or the right spare part, or you ran out of something, um, current, the current approach is you have to bring it, you know, wait for the next resupply mission uh, for the space station and next, you know, cargo mission. Well, if you can make things on a planetary surface, uh, moon or Mars, versus having to wait, um, that also helps you tremendously. Uh, maybe it's that spare part that keeps your life support system going, or um, it's extra oxygen to do more EVAs. So, so we're basically looking at, well, what are the resources out there? Um, I think one of the charts uh, that I have kind of shows in general the things that we're looking at okay um, hang on just a sec let me get my cursor back uh while i while i'm searching chart three but um chart three so, on do do okay and let me you know so so we look at what are the resources that are there okay um, it's up now and uh you know water is obviously one of those that we find hopefully at different locations that has tremendous amounts of, of usage, radiation shielding, drinking, um, making propellants, um, oxygen sources and uh, is probably the next biggest one um, uh, for breathing air and for propulsion and for um, life support systems. And then, you know, carbon and metals. So how do we, first of all, do we know everything about these resources that we, uh, can um, then then the next thing is is designing hardware to extract and excavate and process those resources to get you the products that you want. Now, Jerry, isn't it true that these the moon uh, was recently? I think if I'm if I'm remembering my press releases right, and I may have maybe not be remembering them right, that the moon has a lot more water than we thought it did, doesn't it? Yes. So, um, you know, originally for Apollo. Um, and post Apollo, when we had samples, uh, the thought was the moon was pretty bone dry. Right, right. Um, there, there were those that had theorized that the poles at the at the moons um, at the, in permanently shadowed craters might have water there, but nobody really had any evidence. It wasn't until Clementine, I believe, flew with a, a synthetic aperture radar, um, and then subsequent missions like. Um, uh, Lunar Prospector, uh, eventually um, uh, the the Lunar Resource uh, uh, or um, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter that we started learning more and more that 
that water may be uh, pretty prevalent at the poles as well as migrating um, across the surface. Okay. So this is sort of listing all of the different major uh, components that are important uh, for doing any kind of uh, in situ resource utilization. And so this uh, water being very important, it's very heavy. It's nice to have it already there if you can use it. But with it, you can use you can make all kinds of other things out of it, not just drink it. So that's really good. And of course, the other ones you've listed here are also important. But this reminds me, uh, this, let me go ahead and get to a, a related question that I saw from Hans. I think it was Hans Milling. Uh, uh, let me, where did it go? Shoot, it scrolled past. Oh, it was upcycle electronics. He wants to know, and what, what level of in-situ industrial processing are we talking about here? Are we talking smelting or refining or base materials like metals we're kind of talking about both right uh steven on the one hand finds these things and then jerry you do stuff with them right well i mean yeah we're just like everything that goes on um you start with the most basic of of products the most basic of processing systems um so so you know smelting getting you know, raw materials for for um, for manufacturing, maybe making simple plastics like ethylene or polyethylene because it's it's fairly easy to do. Um, you know, as starting points. Eventually, okay. as time goes on, we'll refine things more and more. But there's always this balancing act in terms of you know how much infrastructure do you need to get the product versus how much product you actually need to produce. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the other reason why propellants uh, typically are are considered, you know, early on is because I need, you know, typically multiple metric tons of product. Um, the infrastructure I need to to generate those um, is can be one tenth of the amount, uh, you know, compared to it. So so I get a lot of bang for the buck. Whereas if I'm making electronic parts. Um, you know, what's the machinery needed to do that versus um, just bringing, you know, spare chips along? So, so you know, that's kind of how we think about these things. Okay. Uh, let me and just. If I, if I could, you, you said you may. Steve finds it. I don't really find it. I, I use what Jer- Jerry's going to produce. But um, finding it is an important part of the problem, too, because there's not water everywhere on the moon, for example. There's not water everywhere on Mars either. Uh, you have to know where it is, and you have to know. You, you get into the hey, finds. You know, I don't really find it. I, I of, use um, which I I know it's kind of there, but what state is it in? How? What's the quality of it? How much uh, unusable stuff is mixed in with it that I got to separate out? Those sort of questions come into play. So there, there's an, an intermediate step between knowing it's there, and turning it into something that's useful. Now on on Mars missions where I have more experience than than lunar stuff, although I've worked both, uh, we, we kind of broke the paradigm of bringing everything with us in the uh, the most recent series of, of design reference missions or design reference architectures. But we actually got NASA, which is tends to be a fairly conservative uh, organization when it comes to, to crews and putting crews at risk. We broke the paradigm by saying that we're gonna make at least part of our propellant on Mars. And we justified that by saying we're gonna make oxygen, which turned out to be about 80% of the propellant we needed to get off the surface uh, by cracking the atmosphere. And the reason we could get away with that is because we knew where the atmosphere was, we knew what it was made of, we knew what the concentrations were. So it was a fairly easy argument to say, here's my raw material and here's the machinery that Jerry was talking about. Here's the machinery I need to turn that that, uh, atmosphere into the oxidizer I need for my uh, my ascent vehicle to get off the ground. So the, there is this there is this balancing point, as Jerry was mentioned, that y- you have to look at the uh, how much stuff am I getting off the back end of the ISRU process versus how much stuff do I have to bring to make it to begin with. And if I have to bring more things, more mass with me to make it, then I get by making whatever it is you're making. Uh, then it isn't really paying off. You need to have it, the, the, the equation go the other direction where I'm bringing just a little bit along to make a lot. Uh, and then you can start getting a lot of uh, leverage all the way back to launching less stuff, as Jerry mentioned uh, earlier in this discussion. 
Right. And well, I, I get, I get the part about, uh, you know, the, the being able, you want to launch and send more, less stuff than you actually end up making there. That that's where you get the, the benefit. But I don't know that you said that NASA is kind of conservative. I don't know that it's conservative to want to bring everything with you. That's really kind of a risk I would think, isn't it? I mean, you kind of want to make sure that you're using stuff that's already there, uh, that would be the conservative approach, in my opinion, isn't it? I mean, it's not really all that conservative to just bring what you, well, it's not even practical. You can't so even really do the, it. The, the conservative part of that is is knowing what you are, if you're going to rely on something, making something at your destination, uh, and you're putting the crew's life at risk in doing so, you better be pretty sure that, that what you're, you're making it from is really there and really in the concentrations that you think it's there and that the process itself, which, which can break down, um, can work reliably enough or can be repaired by the crew uh, easily enough that you're not adding additional risk to the crew by introducing this, uh, another step of utilizing something that's already there compared to bringing everything with you that you can test on Earth and make sure everything works the way you want to work on Earth uh, before you ever leave. Okay, well, to what extent then are we dealing with the, uh, uh, in your equation of when it becomes worth it, and this is, I guess, to both of you, but uh, are you, is part of the plan to send things ahead of time, like, I don't know, robotic miners, you know, mining equipment and and maybe 3D printers or what? So you send that first, get it out there and work. I was watching a show. What was it? Oh, I think it was the first on Hulu. We're going to Mars. Have you guys seen that show? And no. one, one of the things they did in the show it was a really good show. Really good. It's about first trip to Mars or first, you know, mission to Mars. And of course they had to send habitats there uh, that already worked. And one of the big tent scenes in the show was that they weren't getting any feedback from one of their labs that they had already sent out ahead of time and they couldn't they didn't want to send a crew out there without knowing that lab worked so this this is kind of that way where you're sending out equipment and is nasa is that the plan is that to send things out to the moon or to mars first get it working and then send people there yeah that that's pretty much the the way it is and and that's um as as Steve was mentioning, to, to break the cycle of conservatism about, you know, relying, having ISRU in a critical path for the crew, we typically take two approaches. One is to fly demonstrations early on of whatever concept we think we are going to use in the human mission. So, for example, the Mars 2020 mission will actually have a, a small demonstration of ISRU called MOXIE where it has a compressor to suck up the Mars atmosphere and a solid oxide electrolyzer device to crack the carbon dioxide in the Mars atmosphere into oxygen, into pure oxygen. Okay. And so that will be cool. tested on that mission. <laughs> now, yes, it's one 100 scale of what we would fly on a human mission, but it, it shows that it's doable. What's the timeline for that? Uh, it launched in 2020. Oh, good. So it's it's, it's imminent. So That's awesome. Um, but, but you're correct. The other thing that we, the approach we've taken that goes back to, I think Mars DRA 3.0, at least, if not earlier, was the idea that, um, you send your, your plant and your ascent vehicle, you know, ahead of the crew, typically one, one, um, opportunity, you know, 26 months, it lands on Mars, it completely refuels the vehicle, before the crew either ever leaves Earth or ever descends down to the to the Mars surface, so so we know the product's there. We know it's it's ready to be used, um, and so there is no risk to crew or mission at that point. Um, so what Steve is helping with at the moment, for example, is if we do a lunar mission, um, a lunar lander, um, could we use you know, oxygen from the regolith on the moon or oxygen and hydrogen from water for a future um, mission to either uh, take the crew off or, um, you know, hop to another location. Um, and that would require us basically to demonstrate and have that product available before that mission occurs. 
is it easier? I, I, this this may seem like a, a an obvious question, but I don't think it is. The is it easier to do this stuff on the moon or to Mars? Because the reason is to me not obvious is it might be harder to do all this on the moon because there isn't any atmosphere first of all, uh, and the resources are probably not as bent. They're, they're they're probably different enough that you really aren't going to get much out of using that technology to go to Mars, are you? So is it easier to do these in situ resource, uh, resource utilization projects on the moon or on Mars? Um, it's a little of both. I think you you hit one nail on the head, and that is you know <laughs> the like Mars atmosphere. <laughs> um, as as Steve alluded to, Mars has an atmosphere that I can acquire anywhere on the surface. Um, it's a gas, and gases are easy to collect and process. Right. Um, the Mars um, surface environment is typically much more benign, depending on where you land. You know, yes, there's day-night cycles, there's yearly cycles, um, but you can find locations that aren't too extreme in, in temperatures. Um, and having an atmosphere means your thermal control systems also um, are relatively uh, more benign than, than the moon. Um, the benefit of being on the moon is the short time delay. Yeah. Um, so if we're pre-deploying all of this hardware um, before the crew shows up uh, and we have you know, communication time delays of eight to 40 some odd minutes, um, that makes controlling that hardware very difficult. Yeah. And so, so that's where the moon definitely comes into play um, in, as being easier. Do you have any there, comment on another, this? Go ahead, Steve. Tony, if I could. There's another piece of that, too, though, that, that most people, uh, it, it's obvious when you think about it, but it, it doesn't really flow to the top. And that's it. Uh, in any of these ISRU, well, I'm going to go back to my original statement. Any of these propellant-producing processes, if you think about it as an end-to-end -end process, some of the, the back-end parts of this, the downstream parts of this, will be common for the moon or Mars. Uh, once I have oxygen, I have to liquefy that oxygen. I have to put it in a tank. I have to keep it cold with, with cryogenic coolers of some sort. I have to transfer it from one tank to another. Uh, those parts of the, of the propellant production uh, process don't care whether you're on the moon or Mars. It's the front end where you have the raw material that's coming into your, your processor that where you have some differences. And on, on Mars, there's an oxygen, uh, there's an atmosphere to work with. That's one thing. But we also look at, at minerals that are on the ground that have the chemicals either chemically bound in the minerals that we want to get or, or simply uh, stuck together. If you think about water in, in clays, uh, there's water there, but it's not chemically bound to the rock. It's just there. So whatever the raw material is that's coming into the front end of your processor will define some of the unique aspects of, of this propellant production device system. Um, but the back end could, could look very similar to on, on either one of the planets. So if I can do, it, do some of this stuff on the moon, I may learn 50%, 60% of what I need to make it work on Mars too. Uh, it's just that, that the front end of what I'm feeding this processor will be different in some respects on one of those, either of those two planets. Yeah, and I think Harley was alluding to that fact that um, uh, the workshop in August and, and subsequent discussions have uh, we've had on, you know, what parts of lunar ISRU, um, whether it's operations, whether it's individual technologies, uh, whether it's resources, you know, how, how similar are they to processes that we would do on, on Mars and how would that buy down those risks? And, and so there's a lot of, there is a lot of similarities that, that, uh, uh, that can be, um, uh, leveraged. Okay. Uh, right now, um, getting a lot of news on OSIRIS-REx. It's at Bay New now. And, um, it's, you know, it's NASA's mission to an asteroid. Um, are you expecting to learn much that's going to help you uh, when with regard to resources in the solar system? Is this something you're excited about? Are you expecting to get some good data on what kinds of raw materials might be available? Oh, tremendously. Um, both Hayabusa 2 from the Japanese, um, right. as well as uh, uh, 
you know, uh, Cyrus Rex. Uh, we learned a tremendous amount from the Dawn um, mission. Oh, that's right. Uh, Don Don so, recently uh, ended the mission. That mission. So ended. I mean, between those three, um, oh, oh, and then also uh, you can think of the 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 European Comet mission that was uh, recently successful as well. Um, so so yes, um, how that plays into our long term plans obviously is is still. Um, it's not going to really. Yeah, are asteroids going to help much with Mars and Moon? And not, not. I mean. Really. There is the possibility that, um, you know, Phobos and Deimos are, are class D type asteroids and may have oh, similar course. mineral and water characteristics associated with them. So anything that we learn about asteroids might be applicable to, um, to those to eventual two. use of, oh, of, yeah. of Mars's moons. But, but, but here again, when you, when you look at, you know, what NASA is focusing on, um, you know, especially from Mars, it's the, the surface, uh, resources, um, and usage that, that comes to mind first. Okay. Um, the, the asteroids are going to have, uh, the kinds of raw materials that, that could potentially be useful, but then you have to start factoring in the transportation costs. And that's where it tends not to work in your favor, at least for say lunar missions or Mars missions, because of, the, the amount of time and propellant you need to go all the way to an asteroid and make whatever it is you're going to make, and then the time and propellant to get all the way back to where you're going to use it. So I start with a, a rule of thumb. It's not a you know it's not a formula. It's not an equation, but a rule of thumb for ISRU is the closer you are to where you're making it, the the better sure. advantage you get from it. So if I have to go a long ways to 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 get to something, a long way to bring it back. It tends to lose its uh, its benefit to a, a mission. Well, that's true here on Earth. I, I live in Florida, and I still cannot believe that when I buy oranges, I'm buying California oranges. I just don't. <laughs> I don't. I to this day, I can't understand it. But I am, and I'm getting avocados no. from uh, from Mexico. So it's weird. But you're right. That's true everywhere. And it's. I guess um, this is really long term asteroids, right? Well, I mean, well, let me let me add to what um, Steve just added uh, mentioned. Um, about asteroids and about you know products and such. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we have been talking about up to this point has been how is ISRU fitting into NASA's missions? Um, the the Space Policy Directive One. Um, that sounds uh, important. Current administration talks about how do we you know leverage space and how do we commercialize space? Um, and Besides NASA, there may be other users, and, and asteroids um, may be one of those that, um, while it obviously would be difficult to plan a NASA mission to Mars, say, using asteroidal resources because of the amount of time taken to, um, to deliver the resources from the asteroid to a, say, cislunar space, um, a business plan that builds up around the idea of industrializing cislunar space could make that argument. So, so going back to your question about the interest of asteroids, um, you know, I look at it from two perspectives. One is, you know, how relevant it is to a future NASA mission. Um, but the other is how relevant is the work that we're doing also um, towards SPD-1. And so the, and Okay, so the 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 policy directives that NASA is currently operating on—I don't know what that what everything that it says. In fact, I don't know anything it says. But this is just how how it can use what it's doing to commercial benefit, uh, as as well as what it does with its own missions. Right? Am I get am I hearing that right? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, there's uh, basically I I don't have the the policy. Oh, yeah, we don't have to go into it. it. I just yeah, I I don't want to you know it's, really get into it's it. It's not much. that prescriptive, Tony. It, it it's. <laughs> Why am I not surprised? <laughs> but it 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 does call out the fact that that NASA should be uh, helping to promote or or foster more commercial activity in in space. So okay. Sure. To the degree that NASA can can help move things along that's within uh, NASA's purview or NASA's direction, 
to make that happen. Okay. Uh, and I think the commercial lunar lander program, for example, is a, is a good example of how NASA is mm -hmm. trying to, you know, take the spirit of that and apply it where instead of NASA necessarily building all or designing all these um, small landers turning to commercial folks and saying, okay, you know, just like uh, the cargo delivery to space station now, if I have a payload that goes that needs to go to the moon, um, who can fly it for the cheapest amount of money? Yeah, oh, there's other side effects. So though, I just found out that the SpaceX uh, Dragon capsules are contaminating the ISS with, the, with some of their experiments. So there's that's another hangout topic. But I want to talk a little bit about the Gateway because we did a hangout on it a while back, Harley and I, and that's NASA's. That's another thing that NASA is highly emphasizing right now is this cis lunar station gateway that that is a stepping stone to other places like the moon and, and Mars and, and other, and they're very excited about it. Now, when I first heard about it, I, I was enthusiastic. I thought, well, this is great. But then after the hangout, I started to get these people were really annoyed by the idea of the gateway. And I looked into it a little more and I guess there's, there's people who just think we should just go to the moon and forget about this gateway business. But let me, in the context of our hangout and, and our topic, of ISRU, is that going to be a factor in what we do on the moon with our with developing resources on the moon? Because it seems to me like you could use this gateway to put stuff in, right? You go down to the moon, you make stuff, you put it up in the gateway, and you can send stuff anywhere you want in the solar system. Is is that a part of your thinking on, on any of this, or is it not a part of your thinking? The gateway. Well, I, I, Steve, do you want to take it, or do you want uh, me to? Uh, I'll start, and you can you can jump on. Uh, okay. The, there, you know, the gateway. Uh, I I guess maybe, the, and this is take this as personal opinion. I see view the gateway as somewhat neutral in that respect. In that, if it's there, there are things that we can do with it that we couldn't otherwise do. If it's not there, it doesn't mean that you can't get to the moon anymore. So uh, it, has, it has advantages for both lunar and Mars kinds of missions. Uh, for the Mars missions, what's something that's not quite obvious is that we'd like to reuse the vehicle that, that takes crews to Mars and back. Uh, in, in prior years when there was nothing, there was no there there, uh, we tended to dispose of those vehicles after every mission. Uh, if there is a there in the, in the in the sense of something orbiting around the moon that can provide some level of uh, housekeeping support. Think of it as a garage or a, or a, a Tesla plug-in station kind of a thing. Then we can, we can afford to bring those, um, those transfer vehicles back into a lunar orbit and leave them there, refurbish them there, and then reuse them. Uh, but if Gateway isn't there for, for whatever reason, then it, it doesn't stop us from going to Mars. It doesn't stop us from going to the moon. Yeah, it's a it's a um, it's something that that just has to play with the rest of the the pieces that you're putting it has together. To play to nice with everybody else. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Do you have anything to add to that, uh, uh, Jerry? Well, yeah. Um, Steve and I have been with NASA long enough that we've seen a lot of different architectures, and with respect to the moon, it boils down to which particular transportation approach do you want to. To, to use. Um, you know, Apollo had a, a, a low lunar rendezvous um, with its uh, uh, lander and, and um, you know, crew um, with, with direct, you know, launch from Earth. Um, there's been approaches where, um, for example, I think the Russians were looking at having all their hardware meet up in, in Earth orbit before going to the moon. Um, the gateway um, gives a, 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 an interesting approach in the fact that you can separate your kind of up down from the moon um, to, a, to a neutral point uh, with the you know, delivery of, of cargo from the Earth's surface. Um, and looking at the, the changes in velocity needed for, for going down to the surface from a gateway versus you know, delivering hardware from, from Earth orbit to the gateway. Um, you can break up your transportation system in a different way than you would otherwise. 
Um, I think, you know, Altair Lander was a good example of trying to do a, a direct, um, you know, descent to the lunar surface uh, from uh, an Earth launch vehicle, and you could see how big it was. It was like three or four stories tall for the descent stage. Um, so, so having an intermediate point like a gateway could allow you to have smaller spacecraft um, uh, and multiple elements that can be reused differently. Um, as Steve said, um, it, it, you don't necessarily need it to go to the lunar surface, but it opens up opt different opportunities. So now let me guys add one more thing in, in the context of this ISRU discussion. If we have a gateway, and the gateway, you can think of that in a in a broader sense, it doesn't have to be the gateway we're talking about now, but a, a station in uh, near to the moon, uh, we could park a, uh, a lander vehicle there, for example, and just bring propellants. And those propellants could come from the lunar surface. They could come from Earth. Uh, but it saves us, in that respect, it saves us from having to bring that lander every time we want to send a crew to the surface all the way from Earth. We get yeah. up there one time, and then we, we refuel it, we refurbish it, uh, and it opens up, it gives you better leverage for using propellants that you make on the moon uh, versus having to launch them from the earth, uh, much deeper gravity well than, than the moon is. And it, so if you're playing the long game, uh, having something like a gateway where you can, where you can park your, your lander in between missions and refuel it in between missions, um, it gives you a reason for, for trying to, uh, accelerate maybe the, the, the idea of making propellants on the moon uh, and then using those propellants, like I said, closer to where they're being used, the, the better leverage you have in, in having them there. So and the gateway in that respect could become, uh, if you're thinking the long game again, if you're, it, it could be a, uh, a benefit in, in promoting uh, ISRU propellants that are coming from uh, the lunar surface somewhere. And that's the part that makes the most sense to me. You've hit it right on the head. I always thought it would, I get people's impatience about getting to the moon. Let's get a base there. Let's get people on it. Let's start doing stuff. Let's start digging it up and, and, and making stuff. I get that. It's, it'd be great. I'm, I'm all for it. But I also get this gateway thing. Um, it makes a lot of sense. And you're right about the long game, and that's where it comes in. It's not helpful just to get us to the moon and to use it near the moon, but we can keep stuff up there that can go anywhere else. And, and, and we're already up in space. It is a foothold in space that is probably, I assume because NASA is wanting to do this more realistic than trying to build a lunar base. Now you talk to various people around and they'll have opinion. Everybody has an opinion on this, but you know, I don't really have, I mean, I'm, I'm agnostic about whether the gateway goes up or not, but I do see the value in it. And so I just wondered, you know, if you guys use it in your planning at all. And it sounds like you don't really, you're, you're going either way. You do what a lot of people at NASA do. You just, you know, if it's there, great, we'll use it. If not, well, we're not, you know, our mission doesn't depend on it being there. So uh, that's. Well, we do in our, our work, just to be clear, um, one of the definitions of, of ISRU is the fact that it provides a product to a customer. Mm -hmm. And so by definition, there has to be a customer that uses it. Um, it has so if NASA is designing a lander that is based off of um, being at the gateway, then then that sizes our hardware. That's that that kind of tells us what development path we need to go down. Um, if NASA is doing a direct you know delivery of a lander from from Earth like Altair, then that changes the paradigm um, potentially on whether you could reuse that lander or not and how much. How much uh, ISRU can factor into it? So, so since Gateway is a a major, um, uh, you know, item that is currently being pursued by NASA uh, as a first step for both lunar and Mars exploration, um, then obviously um, what Steve and I do is heavily influenced by that decision. Okay, I'm going to go. I want to get to some some viewer questions because uh, we're running out of time. And uh, David Sims has just asked a really good one. He goes, why not build the gateway from the moon? If you're going to use the moon to make things, then why can't the gateway be the first thing made from moon stuff? That's a great question. Can we do that? Do you know? I know you're maybe not involved in the gateway thing, but 
Could you? I mean, so there, there, there's a technical solution and, and that says, yes, you can make it from lunar stuff, but they, but you know, you get into the chicken and egg kind of question <laughs> to make stuff from, from lunar materials and put it in the lunar orbit. Yes, you can do that. But then I have to put all that stuff on the surface of the moon to make the stuff from which I'm going to make gateway. <laughs> and when you start adding up all those pieces, you know, so now I need a lander and I need uh, a factory, let's just call it a factory, that's going to take uh, lunar raw materials and turn it into something that's of a quality that that we can then manufacture a, uh, a gateway from. And I'll have to have uh, an ascent vehicle to bring it up from the moon and put it in lunar orbit somewhere. Uh, when, when you start adding up all those pieces for the benefit of what you want to use it for, it probably makes more sense to deliver it from the earth where you have all the infrastructure to build it, to test it, to confirm that it's going to do everything you want it to do, rather than moving all of that, moving the Kennedy Space Center, moving, um, you know, pick your, your favorite aerospace company, moving their factory to the surface of the moon uh, to make something there to put it into lunar orbit. If all of it, if you make the assumption that all of that's already there, then yeah, it probably makes sense. But it, it's the getting all, of, there's currently nothing there. There's no there there from which to make this stuff. So you've got to put all of that on the moon before you can talk about using lunar derived materials sure. to make uh, a lunar space station. Yeah, it does maybe. Yeah, it does I think, I think um, a, a good analogy of how we might use the moon in building future habitats and such, um, I, I worked with the Russians for a number of years, um, and uh, my colleague took me out to his dacha on one trip, and he was building a really nice house out in, in, at his uh, plot of land that had, you know, um, very, very um, interesting, you know, plants and, and fruit trees and such. But he had basically a shack that he lived in. Um, had, you know, a stove, it had, you know, a toilet and, and it had a heater. And he lived out there on his own while he's building his big house. Um, you can kind of look at maybe some of what we might do on the moon the same way. You know, the early habitats are delivered from Earth. They're small cans, pre pre-assembled. Um, the astronauts could live in that to build their future home. And now you can take the time and the effort to, um, to, to, you know, to do it properly and, and have the people there versus trying to do it all robotically, all from scratch. Okay, can you, I, uh, I, I wanna ask one quick question. I gotta read some more here. Uh, so if we've learned anything from projects like the James Webb Space Telescope where technologies have to be invented in order for the mission to be a success, can you guys give, give me a brief statement on the technology, where we are in the technology of ISRU uh, development? Is there, are we most, do we have most of the technology do we need? Do we need to develop most of the technology yet still that we don't know how to do these things? Where are we on our level of technological skill to be able to do this? Well, I think if you bring up chart 11 in my package, All right. that probably would be a good discussion starting point. Okay. Uh, let's see. So during Constellation, which was the last time we were talking about going to the moon, um, starting around 2004, I believe, was when the vision for space exploration um, was, was uh, released by President Bush. Um, we started a, a development program on a number of different areas. Um, we looked at how do we, you know, is, is there water and other interesting things in the permanently shadowed craters for, for resource prospecting? Um, how do you excavate uh, lunar regolith material and transfer it and, and prepare it for processing? Um, we were very interested in extracting oxygen and metals from this regolith, so we looked at different, you know, uh, different techniques um, that could be done. Um, besides, you know, um, Steve made a, a comment about, you know, resources that exist at your location. Well, 
you know, trash and crew waste is a resource. Um, and since the car moon is actually pretty carbon poor, it's a tremendous resource. So we started looking at how do you process trash and waste into usable products. Um, uh, Steve also mentions construction and civil engineering. Um, we looked into how would you clear areas, um, uh, level them, build berms to prevent uh, the plumes from rocket engines from sandblasting nearby hardware. And so from, from around 2005 until around 2011, um, we did a significant amount of work um, on all these different techniques, three different extraction, uh, oxygen extraction from regolith processes. Um, the pictures in the chart actually show that we took um, hardware out to analog field sites, in particular uh, in Hawaii, where we field tested in 2008, for example, end-to-end um, -end processes for extracting oxygen from lunar regolith using hydrogen reduction. In 2010, we did um, a, a larger test that involved um, uh, what's called carbothermal reduction using methane and cracking molten um, lunar regolith to make, uh, to make oxygen. Um, so in, in NASA parlance of technology readiness level, um, we were probably at the technology readiness level four or five for first generation hardware at a scale that was usable for early um, lunar human missions. Okay, so, the, so, so it looks like the, 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 uh, the technology is not going to be a stopping point here for doing this kind of work. Well, there's always there's always issues turning engineering into final flight hardware. Right, but we don't have uh, to develop. The basic premise has been shown. Okay, right, good, yeah. good. Okay, well that 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 was my point. I just I wanted to uh, I wanted to know do we have to invent stuff still? And it looks like a lot of testing has already gone on uh, with respect to this anyway. So that's really good. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, we get I, I had a couple of questions and it scrolled past again. Um, uh, Andrew Planet, hi, it's good to see you again. Are there any other options than only liquefying any oxygen made on Mars? If we kept only an emergency supply, could we not just get our oxygen from plants, which can adapt to differing levels of CO2? In other words, are there is there any other way we can get oxygen instead yes. of liquefying? Instead I mean, of it, again, it's who's the customer. If if your oxygen is only for crew, um, then um, you know, getting it from from plants, obviously converting the CO2 and the um, from the astronauts and any waste that they have back into usable oxygen um, through chemical means or or biological means um, are all relevant. Good. Okay. Um, uh, upcycle electronics. What if we ignore the politics of picking a destination? Okay. Uh, where would you like to send a mission if it was up to you? based on the known availability of resources right now. So your, this is your opinion. If somebody said, Jerry or uh, Stephen, where should we go? What would you guys say? Stephen, you first. I, I'm agnostic oh. between the moon and Mars. Um, I, I currently prefer the moon a little bit more than Mars um, <laughs> from the fact that it's, it's closer. Um, and potentially easier to send hardware to. Um, and so therefore it, it allows me to, uh, in NASA to develop hardware, possibly at a quicker rate, um, especially with the idea that we might be able to commercially launch um, payloads to the moon um, versus, you know, waiting for a long period of time before sending something to Mars. Um, I personally want to see humans on Mars in my lifetime. So I definitely support um, anything that helps us along that way. Oh, okay. well. So Jerry doesn't care. Uh, <laughs> he just wants to go. Stephen, well, what about you? Agnosticism does not mean you don't care. Okay. I, it doesn't. Okay. You're indifferent, I suppose. Are you, uh, no, it doesn't mean he's indifferent. <laughs> Well, he just, okay. He gave us, let's go to both. So, I mean, you're equally enthusiastic. The, yeah, the equally difference enthusiastic. between one option or the other is none. So it's indifferent. 
Okay. Uh, Steven, how about you? I, I'm in favor of, of getting people into space wherever we can get them and keeping them there. I, I, I grow frustrated with the back and forth of this year we're going to the moon and next year we're going to Mars. <laughs> we uh, all are. We all are. The, the, uh, playing the long game again, I would go to Mars because in developing the pieces that we need to do Mars missions, you get most of what you need to do a lunar mission uh, just by doing it. So uh, Mars, getting ready to do a Mars mission, I think, is inclusive of being able to do a lunar mission if you choose to do so. Okay, well, that okay. with that in mind, let me just say this. Harley and I did a series of hangouts with Arnold Nikogosian from George Mason University, who literally wrote the textbook on human physiology in space. And after that series of hangouts, I actually became quite pessimistic about human beings in space. I don't know that we can survive it. And I guess I would like all of your opinion, including you, Harley. Are you worried about this at all? Do you think this is, I mean, based on all we know about human physiology, it's not a good place for us. Can we even do this? This is an opinion, oh, of course. Sure we, oh, I'm sure technically, technologically. No, I mean biologically, can we survive well, yeah, it? <laughs> biology is a tough thing. I think all the problems are solvable. I don't know how widely appreciated, how really challenging. That's what I. That's my point, Harley. I don't think people appreciate just how unhealthy it is for us to be out there. I, I, I would not counter convinced. that. I, I think we recognize that there are challenges and the, and the more that we explore space with humans and have them there longer in space, um, the more we recognize the challenges. Um, but there are opportunities that come out of that. Um, you look at any exploration that has been done, whether it's, you know, crossing the Atlantic uh, or long, you know, journeys at sea, um, or going to Antarctica, um, you know, exploration is risky. And I think if okay, we go, we, but getting freezing to death in Antarctica is open, recognizing that versus All assuming right. that every mission is going to be 100% successful and, and nobody's going to get cancer and, and, you know, every, you know, all that, I think it, it makes sense. So Tony, what, 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 I, I'm not sure what aspect of this is, causing you concern i mean all of it the entire to, well people were meant to fly at, at thirty thousand feet yeah we do it all the time we figured out a way to do it people weren't meant to spend months we don't fly at thirty thousand feet for eight months to a year and okay. uh, people weren't meant to be, be under the sea at at uh, several hundred meters for months at a time and yet we do it okay my po- so okay. there there are there are way yes there are problems if you did it if you tried to do it without any sort of support. Our job is to figure out how to make it feasible with the kind of support that you need for the human being, the human body to be able to carry this off. Well, okay. I, I'm just telling you what my concerns are. I, I mean, going to the bottom of the sea is not the same thing as going to Mars. And I, there's radiation issues. There's gravity issues. Hmm? Could you do it on your own? What? Your concern down... seems to be if Tony was going to go fly to Mars right now, he'd die. And that's probably true. But if Tony were had the kind of uh, habitation, uh, radiation protection, uh, food growth, and, and, and gravity, other sort of – Mars is a good place. Mars' surface is probably a pretty good place to be. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, I, so the transit can be as short as six months. I, I don't see it. I don't, I'm, I know Arnold, I know who he is. I haven't spent a lot of time talking to Arnold, but um, we have learned how to overcome a lot of the physiological problems that were in the early parts of spaceflight. Okay, cool. And I am confident that we'll be able to figure out how to do it in the future. All right. That's great. Um, good. Well, I, I'm not arguing that we don't do it. I just say I'm concerned and I'm starting to wonder if this is going to be a very unhealthy thing in the long term for human, the human race to try and, and try and do on a large scale. So, okay. Um, well, I want to, th- I guess we are out of time. Unfortunately, I've got to stop it here, but uh, let me just, um, let me just uh, point out that 
many of you who are watching on YouTube went to a wrong link. That's because I accidentally hit a button on my restream uh, console that stopped the stream and then restarted it somewhere else. My apologies on that. But you all found it, and that's great. And thank you for your questions and comments. I want to thank my guests today for uh, joining us. These are both from NASA's Johnson Space Center, uh, the, uh, Jerry Sanders, as well as um, uh, Stephen Hoffman, both from uh, – sorry, I'm moving my – things around both from nasa johnson center and i also want to thank my gravitational wave rubber ducky the royal canadian mount of police yes and harley has one as well uh <laughs> so there's steve and jerry there's a story there yeah there's those are our ma those are our mascots twins you know einstein paired twins or something yeah, we'll tell you. Well, no they're yeah. entangled they're entangled Okay. Yes. yes. So that's why we can't do the hangout without them. So, all right, guys. Um, so <laughs> I want to thank you guys so much for watching and we will be back next week with Astro coffee hangout where we will be talking with, uh, uh authors of a new book that's coming out on, on, uh, uh astronomy and, uh, 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 uh Astro Coffee Hangout. Uh, we'll be talking with them next week. Uh, so join us then. And um, on behalf of Harley and my guests, I want to thank you all so much for watching. And as always, keep looking up. Thank you, Tony. Mm -hmm.